Hi, this is Talia Wilton-Johnson, and I'm Parker's Bestie. Today on It's Been a Minute, Kate Bush has us wondering, is our parents' music cooler than anything new? Plus, the hit show Rutherford Falls reminds us why our aunties are so important. All right, here's the show. Hey, everyone. I'm B.A. Parker. I'm a writer and audio producer, and I'm very excited to be the guest host here on It's Been a Minute for the month of June. NPR is doing its annual survey to better understand how listeners like to spend time with podcasts. Please help us out by completing a short, anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. We would really appreciate your help to support NPR's podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. And maybe you're like me and my guest, Rachel Brodsky. On a holiday weekend, you skip the barbecue so you can binge that latest TV drop. I binged all the fourth season of Stranger Things over Memorial Day weekend, and I turned to my husband and and I was like, I think Kate Bush is going to have a serious moment. Rachel was right. For those of you who didn't binge the show over the holiday, Kate Bush's 1985 song, Running Up That Hill, plays during a very climactic scene in Stranger Things. And now the song is sitting at number two on the U.S. music charts. I cannot emphasize enough that this song is from 1985. It was released more than 30 years ago, and back then it barely cracked the charts. And Kate Bush isn't alone. A lot of old songs are getting new life. Who knows which song from the past is going to go viral on TikTok. Also, investment firms are putting big money into the back catalogs of decades-old artists. I'm talking people like Bruce Springsteen, Neil Young, and Bob Dylan. Heck, even Taylor Swift is re-recording her old songs again and making bank. All of this has me wondering, is old music taking over? If it is, what does that say about what we as a culture value, and how does the technology we use to listen to music influence what we hear? Rachel Brodsky wrote a column on the music site Stereogum this week titled, Everything Old is New Again and Everything New is Out of Luck. So I figured she might have the answers to my questions. I got her and her editor, Chris DeVille, on Zoom to talk about this. And I promise we didn't plan it, but we were all wearing band t-shirts from decades-old musicians. Oh, wow. We're all representing. <laughs> I'm in a B-52s t-shirt, whereas uh, Rachel's in a Bikini Kill shirt, and Chris is in a Stroke shirt. I love it. Oh, we do very well in Brooklyn. <laughs> I was going to tell you how much I like your B-52 shirt. Thank you. I think I've had it since I was 19, so... Ooh. Now, to have this conversation, we had to set some ground rules. I asked Rachel and Chris to clarify what we're defining as old music and new music. Older music could really be anything from, like, the 50s when pop, as we know it, kind of was first birthed and really as recently as two years ago. I like to think that... uh you know, stuff that came out in, like, 2015 is still relatively new. I would hope... You don't expect a song that was released in 2015 to become a smash hit in 2022. And so by that metric, it's definitely old. It would be a surprise. Um, And yet it wouldn't be as surprising now because it's just kind of like this random game of uh, you never know what's going to bubble back up. 
this isn't the first time like an old song has risen up to the top of the charts, but the article, like you suggest that this time is different. And Rachel, like, why is that? Music on the whole catalogs and catalogs of music decades past are so much more readily available than they were thanks to streaming culture. And because those apps want to keep you using the apps, they're going to constantly be suggesting similar sounding songs, like-minded artists of the same genres, because it's that algorithm that you know wants to suggest something that will keep you using the app. Okay, let's pause for a minute and take a look at the charts. There's Harry Styles, Lizzo, Jack Harlow, and they're all mining decades-old sounds like disco and funk. But I want to take a closer look at Jack Harlow's song, First Class. Just listen. I've been a throw up the sex in a He's literally taking an old Fergie song and just singing over top of it. And Lotto, who's also in the top 10 with her song Big Energy, does the exact same thing with Mariah Carey's hit song Fantasy. So yeah, Kate Bush's song from 1985 is resurging, but even newer songs are just repackaged old songs too. You know, there's always been kind of this hunger for the old, like people like the old and familiar. You think about like in the 90s uh, when like Will Smith and stuff were using like super obvious samples. And that's something that it, you know has continued now. You mentioned the Jack Harlow song. Now it's like you even have some examples of people going farther than just using the, the same sample where they'll like actually get the artist, like uh, there's the Summer Walker song where she uses Usher's You Make Me Wanna, and then it actually... Oh, come through, yeah. It also has Usher on it. <laughs> and so like, we're kind of getting a like nuclear grade version of uh, kind of using a familiar sample and bringing in the actual artist who sang on the first song. I mean, people have been noticing kind of an obsession with nostalgia and retro stuff for decades. It's it's more complicated than that though because like people like us who've been around for a few decades, for us it's the old and familiar, but some of the, you know, kids who are discovering these songs and like kind of bringing them back, it's new to them. So that that's a that's a wrinkle of it that I don't fully know how to explain other than the fact that it's just like the whole the, the whole catalog is there and and the new and the old are kind of side by side and there's not as much of a distinction. Why do you think we gravitate towards the familiar or is like is it just comfort or like will we come back to wanting new music eventually or we still are but like we kind of fall back into you know like I listen to Quiet Storm sometimes cuz my folks listen to it. I think that that is something that's always been true. I mean how many of our parents just shook their heads when you know we turn you know put on an album that you know, we were really enjoying of its time. You know, I, I, my parents, I'm sure, hated every pop punk album that, you know, I've listened to in, in my teens. And, you know, I, I think part of what I try to do as just a music journalist is, you know, resist that pull to <laughs> always just kind of go back to the comfortable and the familiar. And, you know, it doesn't really matter how old you get or what time you're in. Um, 
you know, things are always going to evolve and, and what you used to enjoy is going to, you know, just viscerally take you back to a time. Yeah. And then the, the technology, I mean, all the technology that we have now is really designed to play into your basest impulses, right? So like the same way that your phone is designed to keep you looking at it constantly, it's like, well, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to get that dopamine squirt from just, you know, playing through all the albums you loved in college, then uh, the, the technology is set up to make sure that that's what happens. Hearing this, you might be feeling what I'm feeling, which is a little sad. In fact, one music data firm found that 70% of all music consumed is old music, and that percentage is growing. I guess we all carry a little responsibility for that, but isn't it also the music industry's job to promote and uplift new artists and new sounds? After my piece ran, my column ran this week, you know, I got a lot of responses and like my, you know, my mentions and my DMs being like, oh, I'm so depressed. And while I think it's easy to feel like, ugh, like no one cares about new music anymore, I don't, I write about so much new music every day that, you know, it's hard for me to feel like that's true. And um, I do think that the new music is um, really prioritized in like indie spaces, the most mainstream spaces. I mean, the most mainstream spaces are inherently interested in what works, what's been working. How can we you know, say say one in like a hundred thousand artists breaks through and they're doing something different and everyone loves them. And it's like, okay, how can we get someone to do something like this so we can kind of capitalize on this trend? And then you do have that, like the advent of um, artists organically just taking off on TikTok. I mean, there are tons of new artists on TikTok every day, you know, kind of hoping to go viral. I compare it in my piece to you know, going to Vegas at a slot machine, you know, just pumping money in, hoping to, to win big. Um, and I see that, uh, you know, a lot of industry execs will speak about um, new music in this way. Like, you never know, it could be you. I do think that there is that, like, possibility, a kind of dreamy possibility waving in the air that, that you know, keeps artists hungry to be seen um, and, um you know, A&R folks on at record labels hungry to, you know, find them. It's just that they don't have to pour the same amount of money into developing these new artists because they've already developed them, you know, they've already found their own following on TikTok most of the time. Yeah, there's also the aspect where, like, you know, artists famously don't get paid that well from streaming unless they're, like, doing mm. huge volume of streams. But then the, the labels make plenty of money off of streaming. And so in a sense for them, it doesn't matter if the music that you're streaming is old or new. And uh, so that we've got, you know, this huge uh, library of music to pull from and people are going to gravitate towards like, you know, their comfort listens and stuff like that. The positive side of streaming is that you can send, you know, pretty much anything up the charts. Uh, It's not totally controlled by industry gatekeepers. Uh, that's part of why the old songs can become hits the way that they do. It's because they're, they're just responding to like the listener activity in real time. So it's kind of like this weird flattening of time hmm. where uh, every December, 
now Mariah Carey goes to number one, like three, I think it's three years in a row. Every year she gets a check. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, uh, if you want to think about it in a positive way, it's like a democratization kind of thing where it's like, it doesn't matter if it's like the hot new thing that uh, the industry is trying to push. It's like, it's whatever, it's whatever the people want. They're going to push it up the charts. Um, but it is kind of like, it probably is an environment where it's harder for a new artist to break through when like they don't only have to compete with all the singles that are being released in 2022, they also have to compete with ev- the entire history of recorded music up until now. Oh, that last sentence sounded real scary, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but, okay, because now I'm thinking about the younger generations, like Gen Z and the access that they have to all this music and like the flattening of time, as you called it, Chris. Um, it's like old music is new for them. Like what... What impact do you think this will have on what new music will get made going forward? I think that we've already been seeing that reaction play out. I think you know a lot of critics like to use the term genreless. Mm-hmm. You see that with the blending of genres like emo and rap and country, like like a little Nas X, for example. Mm-hmm. We've never seen more artists, new artists at this time, overlapping so many different seemingly divergent genres because they have access to that and have had access to that. Um, I think, you know, Post Malone is a very prominent example. I think, you know, a, a lot of people who have not enjoyed his music historically have just kind of called him an algorithm artist. He's just kind of like the the internet like burped up a, an artist and, and here he is. <laughs> yeah. um, it's not so much about genre for them. It's more about uh, the emotion, the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about vibes. Yeah. <laughs> I think what we're going to see is a little bit more randomness in like what exactly filters in and like even though it's making it harder to break through it is creating more possibility on, you know, the way things could zig or zag and uh, what could catch on. And so, like, I'm very interested to see, you know, if the running up that hill kind of viral moment <laughs> spawns any kind of imitators or, you know, inspires like some sort of, I mean, the, again, there's been a zillion 80s revivals already, but like, what will the next one sound like? I think the more that it sounds weird and bizarre to older people, uh, you know, that's probably a good sign of actual innovation happening. One of these rando bring back things is going to launch like a, you know, a whole new wave of, you know, just like a new subgenre is going to arise out of some song that was released in 1977. I just don't know what it is yet. Rachel and Chris, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Glad we could give you some optimism around (laughs) new music. That was Rachel Brodsky and Chris DeVille. They both write for the music site Stereogum. Coming up, we're headed to Rutherford Falls and talking with the TV show's writer and star Jana Schmieding. And no spoilers, but maybe put your auntie's number on speed dial because Jan is about to tell us why our aunties are so important. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. 
When you plan your celebration of life in advance, it becomes a gift from you to your family. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. With Dignity Memorial Providers, you can pre-plan every detail to give your family and yourself valuable peace of mind, knowing that everything will be taken care of with professionalism, compassion, and attention to detail that is second to none. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. There are many ways for members of the LGBTQ plus community to build a family. Sometimes it's an adoption story, a surrogate story, or something completely different. But no matter how that story unfolds, Mass Mutual is here to help you achieve your family dreams. Contact a financial professional and start planning for your family your way today. Mass Mutual. So my next guest, she's a writer and star of one of my favorite new sitcoms. If you haven't been watching it, you should be. It's called Rutherford Falls. It's about a small town called Rutherford Falls that sits alongside a fictional tribal community, the Minneshanka Nation. That's Jana Schmeeding. She plays Regan, a native historian and best friend to Nathan Rutherford, a white historian played by Ed Helms. It's about friendship and forgiveness and identity and how friends support each other through the various challenging shifts that we go through in our lives. It's also an ensemble following all of the other characters in the town as they navigate its complicated history and its future. I talked to Jana about physical comedy, the wide breadth of indigenous stories yet to be told, and the love we share for our aunties. I love your show. Oh, thank you. Um, I feel so seen. I was like, oh, there's like a, there's a pretty big brown girl in glasses. <laughs> This is really a spoiler, but I think in the first episode of the second season is like you carrying one of those big like life water bottles around. Oh my god, I know. And I was like, ooh, now I really feel seen and slightly (laughs) embarrassed. I know. So let's talk about the show. I love it because it's like it has the loving community and the ensemble of like a Parks and Rec but I get to see more beautiful brown people on the screen, and that is a plus in my book. Yes, me too. Um, we are, the writer's room was made up of a lot of people of color. We had black writers and Latina writers, and we had half of a native writer's room. And all of the native writers on both seasons came from different tribal nations. So it, within the, you know, kind of cohorts of Native writers that we've had on the show, we have diversity within us, too. And um, that is reflective in our our show. While I was watching, I saw, was it uh, Azzy Dungy's name on there? Azzy, yeah. And Azzy, and I just rem- I remembered her story about working at Colonial Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, she's great for this show. Perfect. Because it centers around a museum. Yes. And AZ <laughs> is Black and Pamunkey. She's Afro-Indigenous. And um, she's really, like, you know, very vocal um, about that her identity and her own history. She's a historian herself. Um, but she's also a comedy writer. She's written on... Girls Five Eva, 20s, she has been here. And so, yeah, like, we're really pulling from a lot of the stories from our writers in this season. A lot of our, um, and we were in the first season too, but especially this season, we're sort of 
doing it in a little bit more of a specific way where we get to pepper in our love. You know, for example, Diet Zone today, Leclerc, he really wanted to do a Halloween episode. <laughs> <laughs> he loves like, you know, he loves like holiday episodes of sitcoms. So I do too. I know we all do. And so he was like really pushing for a Halloween episode. And and honestly, the Halloween episode ended up being one of my favorite um, episodes too. And I got to write an episode. Episode five is um, an episode called Adirondack. And it's about Terry and Regan going to consult on a contemporary Western TV show. Um, <laughs> it gets pretty hairy, um, but it was sort of my my homage to Native writers in Hollywood and what we experience, what we have been experiencing as writers trying to, you know, sort of come up in this industry, uh, an industry full of white executive producers who do not know how to write for us and only hire us as consultants and not writers. So our input is not valued to the same degree. We're saying a lot this season through comedy and we're pulling from our own experiences doing so. I mean, we're not going to name shows, but there is, you know, some very big shows right now that place indigenous people as the other and it's very big and they get like prequels and it's like yeah. what do you do with that like i don't know what to do with that like it's everyone's watch i don't know it's very hard i i grapple with it myself uh which is why i, I was so happy to write an episode about it i'm tired of it personally <laughs> that's mm-hmm. just me though Be, but i'm i'm grateful that it it has given opportunities to Native people in the industry, to Native performers. I've seen a lot of my colleagues and people who have come before me, you know, really find their footing and find careers through these shows. So it, it, it's, 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 you know, it's complicated. It's complicated. It's messy. And at least, at least now, the the sort of saving grace, in my opinion, is that there is an alternative to it. Before, there wasn't really an op- opportunity mm-hmm. for us to see anything by Native people. We have worked so hard in the last few years as writers. And I say we, but I'm new to this industry. So, so many other writers and and producers have been working at this for ages, but to sort of reclaim our quote unquote narrative sovereignty and to be able to tell our own stories and hire our own people and pull up our own writers has been a huge Mm. advancement in native Hollywood and, and for native storytellers. And we're good at it. So good. Now you're in your second season of Rutherford Falls. You're in the writer's room. You know, like after you've had that first season under your belt, like does it feel easier to like write Regan and get into her head before shooting season two? Yeah, I think for all of the characters. And this season, we can expand her a lot more. You know, I I sort of, I saw, you know, Ed Helms got like uh, to do this, um, this is kind of a spoiler, but there's a, a bit where he gets trapped in a, a, a coffin in an episode. <laughs> you made me so happy, my love. I, I just can't believe that our song is going to end. <laughs> 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 
Oh, I'm so sorry. I really held on as long as I could, but after like 45 minutes, there's no oxygen in these things. It's so died. stupid. Um, so silly. But I saw that he got to do like these really wacky stunts and I and I told our showrunner, Sierra Taylor Ornells, I was like, I wanna do a stunt like I wanna do something so dumb like that. Like more more physical comedy bits and and so she, you know, put me in a ketchup costume and lets me get kicked in the face in the Halloween episode. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, matriarch to matriarch. <laughs> Like to have that kind of a, a voice in a writer's room is like really exciting for me as a writer. One of the episodes of the season is an ode to Regan's aunt at the time of her passing and all of Regan's attempts to make sure she's honored in the right way. And the eulogies were so funny and beautiful and sweet. And I want to know more about what it was like in the writer's room and how people like brought their own memories of their aunties into the heart of that episode. You know, something that I've been talking about a lot and we sort of were talking about was the understanding as Native people. And I think that this also exists in a, in a lot of African-American cultures and, and in, in Black and brown cultures in general, Um there's a different value system when it comes to families. There is this way that we raise our children and our families in our communities that places a lot more value and importance to aunties and uncles. And I think aunties especially, I say that like parents make the world go round and aunties make the world fun. <laughs> I know that's right. <laughs> You know, you they they take up a, a sort of a sacred space in a family. For sure. Like, I come from a large circle of aunties. And, yeah, and so, like, at the end of May, I took them all to dinner. It was also because I was trying to flex. Yes, absolutely. Because I'm, like, like, a radio person. And I was yes. like, I can take all y'all to dinner to, like, honor you, but also to flex on the strip scampi. But... Um, <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like these are the people that I want to impress in my life. These these women who have had a huge part in raising me and create and helping me d- develop my sense of humor, mm-hmm. bringing laughter into my life during a you know sometimes tense situations in my upbringing. You know, it's like Oof. these are the people who step in when. I don't understand what's happening in my life. These are women who bring that like really important knowledge and sort of liberation. The show also really centers on land back and what that looks like. And in a way that I haven't seen explored much on other, in other pieces of media, except like on my TikTok. But But what was important about getting into like native land ownership on the show in a serious way? What we like to depict on the show are, you know, showing the complications of things and and seeing it with a sense of humor and, and giving it humor. So, you know, the idea of land back or sovereignty over our homelands, our tribal homelands, our traditional homelands, like this is a huge concept and it looks different for every tribal nation. You know, we have tribal nations currently who are buying back their land mm. from uh, private ownership, you know, but a lot of our land is in federal trust. So we don't actually own our land. A reservation land mm-hmm. isn't 
owned by the tribe. It's owned by the federal government. And so we were excited to sort of showcase the many different hurdles and challenges um, that both Regan and Terry engage with in reclaiming their land. You know, Terry goes through the sort of capitalistic route where he Mm. can buy that land from the Rutherfords or he can, you know— sort of threaten the Rutherford Inc. with using old treaty documents. And Regan, you know, wants to, you know, get a plot of land and she goes through like the actual tribal bureaucracy. So, (laughs) which is a real thing. And, you know, it's just like, there's so many different ways it can look so different, regardless of how it looks. It is trying. Okay. (laughs) We hear like hashtag land back on TikTok. Mm. And so it was really fun writing um, episodes that show you here's what kind of it looks like. To close out, like, what do you hope fans are able to take away from the season? I hope that people just have a good chuckle. <laughs> I really just hope people laugh and have a good time. I am all about the power of laughter and humor. And sort of celebrating Native humor through really challenging times culturally. You know, the, the apocalypse is, uh, it's been rough, as you know. <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> so it's nice to have a little levity now and then. And, and I also hope that people can continue to take away from Rutherford Falls um, the understanding that Native people... Um, exist. We live among you. We work alongside you. We are a funny people. We are a loving people. We have rich internal lives. (laughs) So yeah. Jana, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much. This has been a joy. Thanks again to my guest, Jana Schmieding. Season two of Rutherford Falls is out now on Peacock. Hey, it's Talia Wilton-Johnson, Parker's bestie. It's time to end the show with something sweet. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them this week. We encourage folks to brag, and they sure do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi, everybody. This is Holly Murphy calling from Columbus, Ohio. And the best thing that happened to me this week was graduating welding school at age 50. That's five zero. I am now on my way to making lots of money. (laughs) Hi, this is Rhiannon in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And the best thing that happened to me this week is that I just got a promotion after a little less than six months in my new job. I couldn't be happier. I love my team and I feel incredibly supported and validated and being recognized for my talents and abilities just feels incredible, especially in this weird era of late stage capitalism. Hello, it's been a minute. This is Jessie Kendall from Smyrna, Georgia. And I just wanted to share that the best thing that happened to me this week is that I am now fully engaged after proposing to my girlfriend uh, and it was just all the better to be able to do it in June during Pride Month below a sign that said love is love. So it's pretty tough out there for a lot of reasons 
but I appreciate the opportunity to celebrate the good things because there are still good things. Thanks so much. Thanks to those listeners you heard there, Holly, Rhiannon, and Jesse. Listeners, you can send your best thing to us at any time during the week. Just record yourself and send a voice memo to our email address, ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. And one last time, NPR is doing its annual survey to better understand how listeners like to spend time with podcasts. Please help us out by completing a short, anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. We would really appreciate your help to support NPR's podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. All right, this week's episode is produced by Barton Girdwood, Liam McBain, Chloe Weiner, and Janet Ujung Lee. Our intern is Aheyanetta Argan. Our editors are Jessica Mendoza and Quinn O'Toole. Our director of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. And our big boss is NPR senior VP of programming, Anya Grunman. So until next time, be good to yourselves. I'm B.A. Parker. We'll talk soon.